Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. So we've got a different podcast for you this week. We've got a bonus one. And in this episode, we are going to be sharing a YouTube live that I recorded along with my colleagues, Ben Gowland, who is the host of the General Practice Podcast, and also Dr. Anzi Foster and Dr. Hussein Gandhi, who are the hosts of EGP Learning. In this episode, we are having a conversation and talking through the latest business developments and business updates taking place in general practice. We talk about the recently released video from the BMA, kind of pleading for more members in light of the general practice contract negotiations. We also talk about the 1.9% funding increase to the contract. We talk about integrated care and integrated working. We also talk about the Pharmacy First scheme, which launched on the 31st of January. And from a primary care network perspective, we also talked about how networks can demonstrate the value that the primary care network workforce is bringing. I must admit, I did I did do a little bit of a rant on that one, but I really, really enjoyed it. And for some of you, you'll hear maybe like a different, a different side of Tara. It's like more in work mode versus me just interviewing somebody for the podcast. I work alongside Ben, Andy and Gandhi when we deliver our PCN Plus leadership program. So enjoy. Welcome EGP learners. We're going to get started right now on this session talking about the various different changes that happen in general practice, including stuff about the contracts, the pay uplift, some new changes to general practice, and various other things that we can do in primary care to help you understand what works better and more differently yourself and your network as we tech enhance your primary care and learning. So we're really pleased to be joined by our fellow PCM Plus coordinators, Tara and Ben. So we've got really interesting content. And actually, Tara is going to be emceeing this session rather than me and Andy co-hosting it and stuff. So it'll be really interesting to see how we get on. Tara, do you want to take us away and let everybody know what we're talking about today? We're going to be covering the latest video that got dropped a few minutes ago from the BMA. We're going to be talking about the Uplift Integrated Neighbourhood Teams and what is coming up regarding our PCN Plus Live conference in Nottingham. So for those of you that have not seen it, and don't be surprised because it's literally just come out, let's start with the latest video from Katie. Since October, we've been in conversation with government regarding the GP contract for 24 to 25. Now, I've been clear throughout that this must bring hope, safety and stability. That could be rescuing new to GP fellowships, putting GP roles into additional roles reimbursement scheme, relaxing rigid enhanced access rules to help us spend more time focusing on delivering safe, GP-led, expert generalist care for our patients. Yesterday, I spent over an hour with Minister Leadsom, and I don't think the conversation is over. Today, the contract proposal was discussed at GPC England. As I predicted, the response is clear. Unfortunately, the committee feels that the offer as it stands does not bring hope, will not bring stability, and will not guarantee safe care for our patients. Practices will not even break even. Services will be cut, and that's not fair on our patients. Despite our suggestions and solutions, this contract will expedite practices closing. Over a thousand have closed since 2015, not to mention the thousands of GPs who we've lost from the NHS workforce, despite gaining six million more patients. We can't do more with less. General practice is at saturation point, but we are professionals 
and expert communicators. So GPC England has mandated us to go back undaunted, ensure no stone is left unturned, and continue conversations over the next four weeks to hopefully prevent a chain reaction of events from ensuing. We will still be coming to you, the profession, in a referendum from March the 1st. This won't stop a contract from being imposed, but I believe it will demonstrate professional unity as we take steps we haven't taken in over a generation. To use your voice, you need to join the BMA today. Why? To fight, to save general practice. Okay. Wrong words there. That's no sure. So do you do you guys have faith in the BMA at the moment with this latest kind of contract negotiations? Do you believe that they are representing the voice of general practice? I'll jump in there. Um, I think the BMA are doing what they should be doing, which is setting out the tone for what needs to happen. I think they've deliberated over the contract. We haven't seen it, to be clear. This has just gone to the GPC today after potentially being leaked yesterday. Um, and they feel that it's clearly not up to snuff. Um, and there is some strong words there, I, I think. There's some deadlines as well, that 1st of March. That, to me, signals, you know, something that the profession needs to take notice of. So are the BMA doing the right stuff? Well, I think we're talking about the BMA and the GPC. I think the GPC are doing the stuff we've been asking them to do for a while. They are trying to represent general practice effectively and focusing on safety as well as the resources we need to provide that safety. Yeah, I mean, it's difficult isn't it, being a GP in a practice. And the, the power of the national contract is essentially that you have a single negotiation of it, that you have all those practices operating together. And so it's really, really important for individual practices to feel like their voice is being represented by the GPC. And I do think over the last few years, it's been a bit of a disconnect. And it feels like we're seeing that different, maybe for the first time with Katie coming in as chair. I think she's very visible. I think, you know, the video itself is something that we haven't seen before. And it it's the first time we've really had a real strong leader of, of general practice since probably Nikki Kanani, you know, during the during COVID. So I think it's uh, uh, she's a breath of fresh air and really what's needed because the profession's got to be united if it's going to be uh, able to stand together through what's clearly going to be a difficult time. Yeah, I I think as you say, Ben, I think it's been a difficult few years for the BMA. There's been a lot of things that have happened with the PCN contract and with you know impositions on the uh, standard GMS and PMS contracts as well that have happened sort of without the BMA without the BMA and the GPC's involvement. So it's been a hard few years. Uh, this seems like a change of tone for them. Um, I also th think that um, I've seen Katie Bramall Stainer sort of driving the media narrative. Uh, somewhat over the past few weeks. Um, I think they've done some really good work beginning to shift the narrative away from a workforce and recruitment crisis to a general practice funding crisis. That's the language they're now using. You know, there's a lot of um, GP registrars coming through, um, getting their training numbers and coming into the workforce. And actually, because the core contract, um, you know, has just been going up by, you know, 2.1% or so per year, actually, the funding isn't necessarily there to employ all of these new GPs, and I think that's what we're beginning to see in terms of uh, the strain being placed on uh, GP locums and so forth. And I think that's part of the story of why they're finding that they're not being hired so so much uh, these days. So I think they're doing. It seems to be doing a good job of um, of of managing that perception and narrative in the media better. So uh, so I'm keen to see more from from Katie Bramall-Stamer and, and the GPC. So I quite like the tone of that video. I think. So she mentioned some of the solutions that they presented. So one of them being rescuing the new to GP fellowships. She also talked about allowing GPs into the additional role reimbursement scheme and relaxing enhanced access rules. Do you think that those things are going to move the needle? I know there will be other things, but the things that she's referenced in that video, do you think they're going to move the needle? Can I talk about GPs in the ARS roles? Yeah. Um, because I think at the heart of that argument is that I think we need more funding to employ these new GPs that are now beginning to exist. And that's one of the mechanisms in an environment where there may not be um, additional funding that can easily be found from elsewhere. That is one of the mechanisms. You know, obviously, that's a, a, a real significant odds with what PCNs have been so far, you know, and the established workforce. So uh, that's a really controversial thing to suggest. But I think sometimes you have to put something controversial on the table and move uh, 
Overton's window, as they say, in negotiating, so that uh, you know the settlement that you get might it might not be what you ask for, but you might get more of what you want, which I think is more funding for you know core general practice staff, practice nurses, and and GPs. So I, I think it's an interesting negotiating position, and um, yeah, I think it's an interesting suggestion. Oh, interesting to know what other people think, and those people out there as well. You know, people mm -hmm. can comment and and we can bring things on screen. But Definitely agree. Go on, Ben. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that the um, you know the the core funding for practice has effectively been cut over the last three years with the um, imposition of the contract and the fact that you know inflation's been really high, but we've only been getting like two and a bit percent into general practice, right? So the additional role reimbursement scheme is saying we're putting this extra money into general practice and it's on top of the inflationary rise, and so we want you to invest it in these additional roles. So that's fine in a scenario where the, the overall money for general practice is, is investment. But if money's being cut, then I think what practices are finding really difficult is core funding's being cut, you've got this protected funding for PCNs. And in, uh, you know, 7% of that funding is in the additional role reimbursement scheme. So it's quite right, right? The GPC is saying, well, you're not investing, you're disinvesting, but you've got this money here. We should at least use that because we're in this crazy situation now where practices are even having to lay GPs off just because they can't afford them anymore when we know there's not enough GPs. So if you're not going to put more money in, at least let us use the money that's there so we can keep the GP numbers at, at, a, at a core minimum. Um, I agree and disagree with that. Um, I think I'd love to know what people are watching us live. So we've got almost 90 people watching us live. So if you want to tell us what you think in the comments, absolutely do so. And definitely leave a like, so like some of you have done, because that lets us know it's awesome content for you. Um, but in addition to that, and uh, Ben, you mentioned about um, the, the funding resource and, and you know, the only thing that we know of that's been committed to is the ARS funding following April. Um, but the funding to provide the infrastructure to maintain all those roles hasn't followed through. And that's where the, the challenge is in general practice, isn't it? So we've not seen the funding for estates. We've not seen the funding for the supervision. You know, they've all been taken from other pots and people have tried to do imaginative things to make that work. Actually, you just need the resource. You need the space to see people. You need the support stuff around that. And the R's budget doesn't allow for those kind of things. So you can't use the R's budgets to provide, you know, um, a lot of that extra funding and resources that you need to make those roles work. So that's why practice have seen even less of a, you know, um, a balance as a result of that. And that's why practices are struggling partly so much more, despite the fact we've obviously had stupidly inflation rising costs and stuff as well on top of all of it and i guess we've had some comments come in am i right to bring those in art tara yeah yeah so um i guess earlier on we had uh, i asked the question about what do people think of the video fighting talk from uh victoria buchanan uh talking about uh, katie she's got a good stern voice i must admit i kind of felt a little bit churchill-esque in some ways <laughs> but you know uh, but yeah it was awesome uh cheryl i'm not convinced that gps into ours is the answer we need to look at roles supporting personalized care self-management and prevention um and then chris dorrington definitely core staff need to be competitive employer we aren't at the moment and then finally dave uh, more than enough funding in the des to employ other staff the ours encourages use of different roles but is the value of them questionable hmm. tara, what, what do you think tara i think if you have we welcome gps into the additional scheme i think that it will disadvantage some of the roles that in place and i think it will prevent them from recruiting kind of the more of the roles that kind of maybe fall into the personalized care team but at the same time in some areas not all areas there is underspent and actually why not maximize them why not maximise the funding there versus go versus going, you know, like we'll take it away or, you know, like if you don't use it, you lose it. So I'd, I'd probably a bit cautious, but I would want to see that money spent. And if you can recruit, then, good, you know, that's not a, that's only a good thing. I was going to come in and just say I, 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 can, I can sort of hear what people in NHS England might be saying or the concerns they might have, and that'll be around additionality, won't it? I think part of the reason why uh, GPs and practice nurses may not have been included in the original ARS scheme, uh, not just because they weren't considered available at that time, but it's because they don't want um, general practice taking additional money to um, to fund activity that they might have otherwise done with their other funds. This, these are the anxieties that I think the commissioners have had historically 
about general practice you know in the partnership model i don't know if other people but you get that, feel right? that that might have been anxieties that they've had but that's a, a suspicion that i've got i don't think that that's necessarily valid anymore right. if ever it was i think things change you know like things are changed they're constantly changing constantly evolving and there's lots of unintended consequences from doing a b and c that we didn't we didn't they didn't know nobody foresaw so i think that is it about additional when the, the system is already strained or do we need to try and do what we do to meet the demand that we've got? Yeah, the, the concept of additionality only applies when there's overall investment in the service. If there's disinvestment and you're in like a cut scenario, you can't then insist that everything's additional because mm. there, there has to be cuts, right? And so all yeah. you're doing- Unless you're NHS England, yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're basically saying, You've got to make cuts because we're cutting your funding yet again, but you're not allowed mm. to cut this big pot of funding that we actually, some practices think, is maybe adding less value to some of the core services that they, that they, that they provide. I so think you, you're both I, right. Yeah, things, I think things have changed. People, yeah. I think the people joining yeah. us live are, are somewhat agreeing with you as well. So we've had Janine talk about ours. We have significantly underspent due to lack of estates and very now small pool of people to recruit from. How do we recruit with no one out there to find space? Cheryl talks about um, underspending some things out of your control via slippage and not necessarily a lack of intention. Uh, Janine comes back with additionality, the restrictions around some of the roles, i.e. paramedics. I definitely agree with that with the mental health workers. The restrictions put in there massively changed that role. Um, and I guess Lisa Drake comes out with some really interesting points. Someone needs to put research in detail why they're underspends. Is it too tight on the spec? Is it inflexibility? Is it other competitors uh, as well having an impact? And just as we finish on that talk, um, Victoria mentions about your one of your points, Tara, about is scaling back um, the enhanced access to focus on core possibly being sensible, which was one of those other points made by Katie in, in, in the, the speech and things. Okay, let's move on. Otherwise, we'll just spend the whole time talking about that, although it is very linked. So let me just make sure I get my numbers right. And if, I, if I'm slightly incorrect, just let me know. So from, I think, in, in the summer... 2023, the additional role reimbursement scheme was increased approximately by 5%. And then uh, the government announced that it would provide a 6% increase to all salaried practice staff. And now we've recently received the announcement that the GP contract is going to include only 1.9% um, uplift to the GP baseline funding. Okay. Mm -hmm. So my question is initially, is how does this latest announcement change things in general practice? And I'm going to start with Andy. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> I think that the sums are starting to not add up in general practice. Um, you know, and, and last year, I think the uplift was uh, was 2.1%. So 1.9% is a similar situation this year. You know, we've had a few years where inflation has been running at, you know, I think, you know, up to 10 to 15% at its maximum when we've had uh, the minimum wage increases, which lots of our staff in general practice are sadly paid minimum wage for very difficult jobs in our reception and admin teams, you know, which actually has often meant, a, you know, 10, 11% increase in those staff wages and then, you know, salary GPs and other medical roles being increased by 6% last year. That whilst we got um, that money through for the workforce component of the GMS contract, um, it doesn't take uh, somebody with a great deal of intelligence to see that the sums don't add up and that the, there has been a real terms decrease in uh, general practice core funding over the last few years. And, you know, there was an article in, in, in Pulse which is uh, suggested I'm looking for the figure now, but uh, there's definitely been a real terms. Uh, I might not have found it, Tara, but there's been a real terms decrease in, in general practice funding. So um, I think it's a really difficult figure. I, I can't see how 1.9% works without um, general practice considering to feel pressure um, on you know, maintaining current staff levels you know and we are beginning to see practices uh even let let gps go you know as we're seeing stories about so my, my reaction is that, that the funding doesn't work and it looks like somebody has potentially leaked that 1.9 percent figure you know out maybe from somewhere um and yeah doesn't work i'm 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 feeling a little bit insulted really by by that figure and i think it will be damaging for general practice i'll stop talking now okay. some don't add up that's that's what i think so it, it just won't work Without, without patients experiencing a reduction in the level of service. It's like a proper kick in the teeth, isn't it? I mean, look at what the junior doctors have been offered, but what the consultants have been offered, and they've been on strike. And then you've got 
GPs who've got on with it despite not being given a rise, and then what they get offered is even less. So you have to, it's, it's not a surprise that you know our, our friends at IGPM and the Institute of General Practice Management have, have released you know a strong statement which I fully support, basically saying how how can you um, treat us like this? It, it doesn't make any sense. Counting. So if you go back to some of the survey work that's been done recently, and I know me and Andy have covered the surveys repeatedly, and we would highly recommend people still complete the GP survey, which doesn't finish till next week, and the incentive survey, which finishes in March. Um, but, you know, the surveys showed that from the practice finance one, that there was a massive push to fill in, that on average, practice are 20% less income this year compared to previous years. So if practice income has dropped by 20% and then they're only offered not even 2%, not even 10% of that as an uplift, how are we meant to balance the books? Tari, you, you mentioned obviously those figures, the 5% uplift for the R's roles. So that's not practice funding that's gone up. That's direct pay for those R's roles. Um, the 6%, which was actually, as Andy mentioned, I think it was 2.1 or 2.4% increase because it was 6% on 44%, which was a universal value they took to account for workforce, which for some practices was okay. For yeah. many practices, actually, it doesn't work. So if you are a partner-heavy practice, you did all right out of that. If you are not a partner-heavy practice, and you have more additional roles, you have more um, you know, ACP bet type roles or multidisciplinary roles or more salary doctors, you are actually in the negative. Um, and I know many practices are now looking at that April deadline that Andy mentioned about the pay increase when minimum wage goes up because the reality is a lot of our you know, really important staff, unfortunately, are paid close, if not minimum wage. When that goes up by you know, one pound, and stuff actually the bottom line drops even more add into that the increase of costs add into that the cloud-based telephony costs that we have mandated we have to move to so many practices are now seeing ten thousand pounds yeah. worth extra costs for their telephony because they have to use those systems they have no choice that's a contractual requirement actually you you know katie's not wrong we are going to see closures of practices you know me and andy have done our predictions episode every year in past two years i've been predicting it and you know it's scary because it's going to happen and it has happened so yeah it's a kick in the teeth as ben mentioned i found the figure it's a seven percent uh real terms decrease uh annual real terms decrease no real absolute real term decrease since 2019 uh that's been calculated and uh, the bma figures are astonishing at 20 percent reduction in practice finance although i always think that's the practice that were motivated to submit details from their accounts so just you know caveat that may not be fully representative and, and those uh who submitted were probably most motivated to do so because they felt they were losing out um, just always the to give some balance uh, like the bbc tara what do you think I think from a primary care network point of view, I think it's really important for those of us that don't always work in general practice, the videos like this and conversations like this are really important because sometimes if your network feels like an, you know, separate to your practices, there's real tension. So primary care network staff, without being rude, you know, we think it's all about us and primary care network stuff and trying to progress all of that work, meaningful work but they sometimes don't understand or appreciate the impact happening in general practice. So I think it's just, it's it's really, really, really helpful. And I think primary care network staff, I know we're all supposed to be one big team, but in some areas it does feel separate. It, you need to understand the impact and work out how, you know, how can we use the primary care network resources to support general practice versus just sometimes you know like be focused on the des and the primary care network aspect of work does that make sense definitely I mean, my, my question would be why is why would the nhs England, the government make such a, a low offer right so it, is it because they need to find money from somewhere and general practice feels like a soft target it could be that they've got to find, they've got to find a way out the, you know the current strike action that's going on or is it some kind of agenda around integration of general practice so making it part of the nhs so make it just unviable so people go okay fine you, you can take it over but there must be a reason for it, it doesn't make any sense or, or, or is it so that they'll offer us you know five percent later in the year and we'll 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 snap their hand off because they're playing games with us potentially and these overton window that keeps coming through and stuff 
yeah. I'm very cynical. I'll, I'll, I'll get my <laughs> tinfoil hat on in a, in a second. <laughs> well, Andy, it's interesting you mentioned that, but let's have a look at some of the comments that we've had coming through. Um, so Andrew King, is the government trying to force closures and mergers as indicated five years ago to larger super practices? Um, Cheryl, again, so frustrating. We're focusing on patient experience via the capacity and access. Uh, I think that's what's the cap, what sounds for. Um, how will this possibly help? Um, JC, EGP Lane regular, saying she's living this, and this was when we were talking about the challenges of finance and stuff. Um, Emma, really valid comment. Our workforce costs are more than 100% of the funding that they get from GMS. I'm going to be honest, my practice is very similar. The GMS income just about covers our wage bill, um, doesn't cover all the other extra stuff. Um, and really, I, I love this one from Anish. Vodafone contract has this. Every April, in every year in April, we increase your monthly bill by the CPI UK Consumer Price Index plus 3.9% to cover ever-increasing costs of running our network. Is this an idea for general practice? Hmm. Definitely some interesting stuff there. But I think before we go on, I guess one thing I did want to mention... Um, Obviously, loads of you have enjoyed joining us for this session and stuff. If you do want to join us for more of this, just to mention, me, Andy, Ben and Tara are going to be doing a live conference around this and everything else on Wednesday, the 17th of April, live in Nottingham. Um, it's called our PCM Plus conference. You can sign up with the link here and we'll put it in the chat as well in a second. Um, you need to be quick. We, we're about three quarters full already and we've barely done any promotion for this as it is. And you get to join us live as we talk about whatever the outcomes of all this discussion is going to be on the 17th of April, as well as the future PCNs with not only us four, but also some of our friends as well. So absolutely, if you want to join us, feel free to do so. But I will pass it back to you, Tara, to keep us going. <laughs> And I just wanted I just want to highlight um, that Bill Graham's um, comment where he said uh, practice and PCM relationship is key as this relationship. It is, I think, more so than ever, they need to be seen as one or if not one closer. It is, it's so important because it just makes it really difficult all around. And I think that if general practice staff are being paid minimum wage and then you've got, you know, our staff paid at the top and sometimes over the top it's going to just widen the gap in the issues yep. and people are just going to be you know like swapping seats all of the time so it is really 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 important let's move oh, just before you do tara i'm just going to bring one more so dr q's use love the name there we need solid details on the contract and funding so we can budget and plan for april the first staff will leave if we continue being left in limbo and dealing with leaks and rumors nothing solid doesn't really help. Uh, I definitely agree with we need details of this because actually practices cannot plan for April 1st. Not just practices, but networks as well. So obviously the network contract is still up for renewal. None of us have a clue what happens with PCNs post April 1st, which then makes so many of the cool work that we've all been doing or trying to do really just, yeah, doesn't it? The only thing I'd say and that is, we should lower our, maybe should lower our expectations around, you know, like solid, solid plans. Um, yeah, yeah. Disappointed. Okay, should we move cool. on? Move on, yeah. Okay, Pharmacy First, that officially kicked off on the 31st. Um, it's an initiative designed to increase the support for patients and hopefully reduce pressure in general practice. Mm -hmm. uh, not well, just like everything, there's a, a variation of opinion around can pharmacy, does pharmacy really have the capacity because they're just in a similar situation to general practice, it's really, really tough. Um, some pharmacies are geared up, they're ready, welcoming patients. Do you think that this is going to help or hinder general practice, Andy? Um, I think it's going to be a turning point for how general practice is viewed personally. So I suspect what's going to happen is many practices are now going to start saying to patients, you're contacting us about an ear infection, you go direct to the pharmacy. You're contacting us about UTI, you go to the pharmacy. And actually a lot of places already, I mean, we're only on day two, are saying to patients, this is how you now need to manage this health condition. We're not involved anymore. And similar to, I guess, you know, if you want to have a similar perspective, how dental things are dealt with in general practice. You know, if it's a teeth issue, go to the dentist. We're not meant to deal with this. And I think we'll start to see a shift towards that. Important to recognize that there are significant restrictions in some way the service does actually work. So 
um, for example, ear infections, it's only available for one to 17 year olds. So if you're over 17, you can't actually be seen in the service. And that will cause some challenges in terms of how people interpret the service. Um, additionally, as you mentioned, Tara, the big question is, does community pharmacy have the capacity to deliver this? Because whilst it is very well funded, let's be clear on this, it is exceptionally well funded for the work that's being done. They need to have the capacity to do that and still do the community pharmacy stuff, because if the people can't get their prescriptions, actually, it's pointless in some ways, because then all the other things we're trying to do aren't going to work. So I, I think it's going to change general practice quite considerably. And it's the start, I think, of things moving away even more so from general practice. We've already seen that with vaccinations. Is this the next step? Can I just, yeah. before you come in, Andy, do you, as a practice, do you want that? Do you want the coughs and colds and those things to go to pharmacy? Or is it, um, do you want to keep it? Can I come in? So, because oh. there were two things I was going to say. So one, one was um, in my area, diff, uh, challenging area, lots of deprivation. Um, we're struggling to um, to understand which pharmacies are going to be offering this service in mm -hmm. our area, and it looks like not many will. So I've just got a concern about this widening health inequalities because I'm sure well-set-up pharmacies in well-to-do areas will probably do very well with this, and those populations will be well-served. Um, other areas facing, you know, ch challenges, socioeconomic difficulties. I, I just worry that it might widen those inequalities uh, in experience and then also i was going to make a comment about case mix um because what a lot of the gps out there watching will be have experienced over the last few years is you know 15 years ago your clinic had some coughs had some colds in had some medication reviews in you were doing 10 minute appointments you're doing 15 in the morning 15 in the afternoon and part of the reason that you could cope with that was because of the varied case mix uh now many people will still be doing 10 minute appointments they'll still be doing 15 in the morning 15 in the afternoon but they will be doing a lot more complex mental health complex comorbidity frailty um pain difficult pain management that are really really challenging and that's because the case mix has been shifted by these low challenge cases kind of going elsewhere and the system i don't think has really acknowledged that and i think that's why a lot of gps are facing burnout so as you said do we want those um i think actually if we're not going to be funded so that we can have longer appointments with the more challenging cases i think a lot of gps do want those in their clinics so that it can be padded out a little bit with some um you know lower challenge cases so that they can cope with their day-to-day -day life i think okay. have you been in direct conversation with your pharmacy sandy uh it's through the primary care network but but yes they've been reaching out to pharmacies and one or two are going for this some uh it's very difficult to talk to talk to them you know even sending out pcm pharmacists to talk to them it's very difficult to get an answer from them and to engage with them unfortunately it's interesting so they're leading the service but you guys are being the pro the proactive party that's 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 my experience in my area and I think it's important to remember, like you say, Tara, the capacity issue. So I know that my local pharmacy say they can deal with two of these a day, which considering they serve a population of over 15,000, that's not enough to, to manage the demand. Um, and I guess the other thing, as ever, the tech doesn't work when it comes to this kind of stuff. So the fact that the information sharing mechanism between practices and pharmacies hasn't actually been fully fledged and set up and that we're having PDF documents come through for us to then scan in. Actually, it's not saving workload in that significant area it may mean that you have less consultations but it hasn't changed the workload coming through because practice is still having to process that workload and there are some elements of concerns of how this will work for certain types of patients where you then may end up missing things because of the access routes that are being created without the data governance and the information sharing to make sure it's safe they've just got it ready because they were told they have to get it ready before the end of january and that seems to unfortunately to be the trend with a lot of this stuff. It has to be by this date. So we'll go ahead with it, even if it doesn't work. And as usual, general practice is left to pick up the problems. There's lots of comments coming in. There is. Like, There's like, loads. We initially were going to like, like skim past this, but people seem... No, there are absolutely loads. So I guess one of the ones I'm going to bring on, Janine uh, BT again, Pharmacy First is the rebadged CPCS, but no comms or engagement support from our ICB. Very disappointing. I will point out there are some comms that are going out from NHS England as well that says your GP will send you to this service. The whole point of the service is you're not meant to go to your GP in the first place. 
Anyway, um, so again, Victoria Buchan, uh, no comms about how to refer to pharmacy first, who is actually involved. Um, Cheryl talking about how CPCS wasn't helping out in the first place. Uh, Lisa, concerns over the additional workload for reviewing and accepting the details into the record in many practices and ongoing care expectations after the first episode. Very much so. If you get antibiotics the first time you get an ear infection, do you keep going back for more antibiotics when we know that actually 90% of ear infections are not bacterial and antibiotics will make absolutely no difference? Are we then growing superbugs? We don't know. We will see. Um, Lisa then also commenting again, also keeping the DOS directory of services updated has never been an ICB strong point. There's bound to be a delay in doing that and things. And then Sarah Random Stuff, cool name there. We've been told all our pharmacies are signed up, but seen significant issues with CPCS, especially where they are reliant on locum pharmacists. Yeah, potentially the case with this newer scheme, which has the possibility much higher throughput and stuff. Um, uh, which other ones should we go to? Let's go to Rob Alzer. Uh, this is about relationships, same as PCNs versus GP. The R's template job spec for clinical pharmacists is relationship building apart and the key role relationship and communication is key. Definitely agree with that. As Andy mentioned, it's our PCN pharmacists who have been leading the communication work with our local pharmacies to help support some of this. Um, just for those that people who do want to know, so the seven conditions covered by the pharmacy first scheme is acute otitis media, which is a bacterial infection, impetigo, insect bites, which are infected, which again, majority of insect bites are not infected. Um, shingles, sinusitis, again, 90% of sinusitis cases are viral and don't need antibiotics. Sore throats and uncomplicated UTIs. So the interesting part will be is given a lot of those conditions don't actually need antibiotics, but patients are being told in the comms, you will get antibiotics. No, are we setting? I don't think the guidance is saying that they, patients will be told. I think the guidance, and don't, somebody will correct me, um, but <laughs> I think the guidance, you'll, you'll get advice. And actually, if I, as a patient, and I've got small kids and I, they've got a cough, rather than go to the GP, even though it's viral and it's all clear and all that stuff, I might go to I might go to the pharmacy and I'm not coming to you. So I don't think it's saying you will get antibiotics. You'll get advice, you may get over the counter, or you may get offered the antibiotics through their kind of, you know, like their process. It's not a prescription, I've been told. So <laughs> Correct, Tara. However, unfortunately, even Richie Sunak has said you'll get antibiotics from the pharmacy. Could I, could I do just one more comment? Because uh, this is something that's a little bit close to my heart, really. So so Dave said, um, oh, no, they've moved. It was Ankish's comment. Our secret source is our relationship Anish. with patients. Anish. Anish. Anish, sorry. We've got a local Ankish, so that's making me see Ankishes everywhere. Our secret source is our relationship with our patients. This is another nail in, into continuity of care with your mm. GP. And this is a point I sometimes make to, to medical students, other people about continuity of care is um, I've been in a position where I'm ringing somebody up who, um, you know, is maybe in their 20s, having their first psychotic episode, you know, actually, it's really important that they trust the person they are talking to, to get them in and get them some help, you know, it's their first experience of serious disease. And I'm often in a position where I can say, Oh, it's Dr. Foster, you know, me, I've seen you multiple times when you were a child with minor illnesses, you know, you can trust me, I'm your family doctor because we built up that relationship in episodes of contact around minor illnesses and you can really leverage that relationship when there's a serious diagnosis or a need to use that trust to get the best outcome for the patient and that's not really valued at the moment where there's a, just a focus on access so I think that's a really pertinent point Anish thank you very much. So can I just say you can't have it all you know like yeah fair if point there aren't if there's not enough of the workforce and there isn't enough money one could argue they're trying to create initiatives if the we may not get that continuity but i'm not coming to you for a cough and a cold when i don't need to see you so it's a bit there has to be a compromise because there isn't enough resources to go around even if you have the money you don't have the gp you don't have the workforce well or do, or do we now? And the and the GP workforce is going to expand significantly over the next few years. But we don't we don't have it now. And I, I I take you're absolutely right with that with that point. You can't have it all, but you can choose you know where to focus and what to focus on. And and I think actually there will be workforce there. And there is a decision to be made around funding because I think that might become the rate limiting factor here. You, you're right, Tara. Um... Maybe I want too much. <laughs> so it cut. I mean. 
I'll just touch on it and we'll see where it goes. But I think if you think about more, rather than integrated neighborhood teams, and you just think more integrated working, then this is that and continuity may look different because we're all one big team, we're all one big family. And actually I may have continuity with the pharmacist. My youngest has got type one diabetes and when Lloyd's pharmacy were open, I knew them. Like that was, I had continuity there. And they, so it's, we may have continuity with multiple people in the team and not just one person because it can't be you. It can't be you as a GP because you're burning out. Valid point. And continuity is seen <laughs> differently nowadays as well. So uh, as Tara said, you can't have it all. And I guess Andy's point is that actually relationship is the key part of things. If you, if there is trust, that's where it helps and stuff. I know Sarah comments on this. So trust of the pharmacist is definitely an issue. Patients don't recognize the difference between pharmacist dispensers, customer service at Stafford Boots. So they don't have the view of the pharmacist equals the HCP. Interesting point there, because I can see that many of our practice teams may feel very similar to that in the sense of how they work within practices and stuff and things. Okay. Shall we move on? Let's yeah. move on. Okay the additional role reimbursement scheme roles. I think I've posted a question in one of the Facebook groups that I'm the admin in to ask about, oh, are we seeing value in the roles? And I know you guys have done an episode on it. And I think the question is how can primary care networks demonstrate, the better demonstrate the value of the additional role reimbursement scheme? So those people working so hard to try to prove themselves and feel valued and seen and the and general practices feel like this is helpful to us if we didn't have them we things would be very different so how can we better show the value of these roles i think i think the problem is that we the context that we're starting from right so the, the the problem that we've got is we've got these additional roles at the same time as, as these cuts to general as to core general practice and so what the resentment that practices feel is that I haven't got enough funding for my core service delivery, and yet I've got this insistent, insistence this money goes into the additional roles. So instead of it being about can additional roles add value, it's can additional roles add more value than me having proper funding for my core um, practice delivery, right? Which it, that's, not the right, that's not the right way for additional roles to add their value. That should be... I'm properly funded for my core uh, delivery and then additional roles that they've been able to add value. And so what we're getting is a lot of hostility and negativity being directed towards additional role, which is nothing really to do with that. The, the real hostility is about the fact that they're underfunded on their core contract. And I think those two things are getting confused and it's, um, it's anger that's being directed at the, at the additional roles when it should be being directed to the fact that the contract isn't being funded properly in the first place. Yeah, can I can I add to that, Ben? I, th I think um, the world's different now to, to how it was in 2019 with more pressure on core funding, because actually, if you look at what people were asking for around 2018, 2019, you know, actually, we were having conversations around actually a large proportion of uh, GP workload is musculoskeletal cases. Wouldn't it be great if there was a physio in practice that could see that so that the GP can, um, you know, practice at the top of their license and, and see those cases that only they can see? A large proportion of our caseload is taken up by people who just need social input. Wouldn't it be great if we had social prescribers who could support those people more effectively? Uh, so they kind of, in a way, I think gave us what what we uh, needed and were asking for in 2018, 2019. And I think you can evidence that in many places they do that quite well. Um, it's just that maybe the goalposts have moved, as you say, Ben, and the situation's changed. And we're now looking at uh you know what as you say you know, core funding is 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 really challenged and is that still what we what we need that's just my observation and perhaps why perceptions might be more negative now um ben oh no sorry uh, tara gandhi what do you think um i'll go in i think you know the, the roles have definitely become integrated and, and as andy mentioned you know there are particular roles that have excelled i think for majority of places so if you look at the the physiotherapist role for MSK based stuff. I think the pharmacist roles have shown us what can be really done when you've got a specialist person focusing on particular things like medication use because it absolutely improves the quality and the personalized care roles in terms of supporting patients with the things that actually GPs 
shouldn't really be doing and, and aren't best place to do as well. Um, I also think the care coordinators are an excellent role in terms of case managing and, and supporting the administration aspect of general practice to find the patients that we need to focus our support and our care for, because actually that's how you deal with unmet demand and unmet needs and, and, and that kind of stuff and things more effectively. But have we integrated them fully? I think different places have done different things. And there's so many cool models that we've heard of uh, over the time in the PCM plus and other areas and things. But the reality is every model doesn't work everywhere. And that's part of the challenges. And I think that's why we've seen some areas where PCNs just haven't worked. I mean, if you take uh, Jamie's comment, um, you don't need PCNs for the R's. You know? It's a valid comment in that sense. Actually, PCNs have made R's a factor of it. But do you actually need the mechanism of PCNs to make ours work? Could it not have come through the global sub instead? So, um, the comments are coming in. I'm just going to highlight one comment because I couldn't agree with this more. Uh, Sarah's random stuff says pressure to use your ours money has meant that some PCNs have recruited our staff without clear purpose. And I it is my biggest frustration. And it, hopefully it's stopped now because it's like if you don't use it, you lose it. So people mm -hmm. will just buying you know trying to buy people and then they get into the position and they're not wanted so i think for some networks it's about going back to basics and really thinking what do we want these people to do how are we going to support them and to make sure it's in a collaborative endeavor and not just you know like one person's kind of mission to try to you know that it works in one practice so i think that thinking about the future that you they when you look at it's like having a proper workforce plan and making sure there is value and really practical simple things like every month showing this is what we've done as a PCM these are the appointments these are the positive testimonials from the practices and the patients and I think constantly making it visible but if you never ever if you just employ them and there's no supervision sorry I will calm down. If there's no supervision and you don't ever highlight the amazing work that they've done, they can't see it. And they will just think, what does Tara do? So I think that really basic things around role purpose, clarity, supervision, and making the stats, the key performance indicators visible every month. Okay. Tara, the reason why we're all grinning is because we keep putting on the comments from everybody else saying that you are just absolutely 100% correct and bang on. Um, uh, apologies for everyone joining us. It's slightly an in-joke that we all think that Tara is absolutely amazing um, and having to remind her that she's amazing because absolutely. And you just saw why, let's be honest. Um, so there we go. Um, but we have had some other comments as well <laughs> that have come through uh, on that particular topic. Um, so MRA demonstrating the value uh, and point of ARS is key. Making PCN services and staff indispensable to practices is vital. Interesting concept from Andrew King. Community pharmacies could be part of PCNs to deliver integrated care. Interesting perspective. Very different from Jamie's. Additional roles were good when we couldn't get new GPs. Now we can't. Now we can and can't afford them. Going back to Andy's earlier points and stuff. So have we created a system by definition and things? I don't know. Lots there to think on. Okay. And then let's end on integrated neighborhood teams or integrated working. So I feel like when I think of integrated neighborhood teams, I think then. I don't know why. <laughs> you know, it was interesting. I mean, we started in with Katie Bramall-Stein and the leadership that she's now providing at the GPC. And one of the things that she said in a Pulse interview recently was that the in the, in the negotiations that she's having with NHS England, the only show in town for them is integrated neighbourhood teams, which gives you a kind of insight to what's um, going on in the heads of NHS England. And the thing that I think uh, is getting lost by the system, by the NHS in particular, is they're so desperate to have integration as in the different parts of the service talking to each other and working together that they're forgetting the need to actually fund those individual parts as well, in particular to fund the bit about general practice. And so, um, so it's definitely coming. It's definitely on the agenda. We're definitely going to see more around integration. I think the challenge for general practice to ensure that that is uh, 
something that can enhance general practice rather than be at the expense of general practice. Andy? Gosh, um, I think it's still difficult to understand quite what an integrated neighbourhood team you know, is really at the moment. It's difficult to get um, to get a straight answer on that. Um, and so people are beginning to talk, as you say, about integrated neighbourhood working, which I think sounds um, a little bit more on the money. I think the Fuller Stock Take was talking about the evolution of PCNs into integrated neighbourhood teams. And I think that's where we probably began the thinking on it. But I think it's becoming clearer that actually um, integrated neighbourhood working is going to be more about pulling together those things that already exist and support support patients, you know, their general practice, their hospital clinics, uh, the other community services and integrating those together rather than something new, which is primary care networks morphing into integrated neighborhood teams, which I think is the first thought that many people did go to when we began to talk about uh, the movement in that direction. Um, I'd sort of encourage people to really get involved in the conversations that are happening um, you know, with ICSs about what integrated neighborhood teams are going to look like in individual people's areas. There's definitely conversations and engagement happening in the Nottingham area because it's it's going to happen. So I think general practice and primary care network have an opportunity to really form and contribute uh, to the idea of what they're going to be. Uh, and if they don't do that, they may become something which they don't um, like or don't feel works for them. So I don't really have anything concrete to say because I don't I don't think it's really sort of concretely been been defined what that is or someone can correct me or someone maybe have a really good definition. But I think one of the things I my observations is the NHS is a complex a complex adaptive system and in order to survive in this system sometimes you need loose plans. If if we're told exactly what to do, we don't like it. When we, it's a little bit vague and a little bit like, actually, we've got the pharmacy first. This is a really good example, I think, of going, OK, well, how do we work closely together and form more integrated working? But if we have the mandate, we don't want it. When we have flexibility, it's too vague. Yeah, no, no, I'm with, I'm with you, Tara. I think it might be a, it would probably be a disaster if there was a central idea of what an integrated neighbourhood team is. I think it has to mean different things for different people and probably for different applications for different patients and different scenarios you know an integrated neighborhood team for a frail elderly person might look very different to a, a young type 1 diabetic they might have very different needs and actually which organization is the lead in that um, team and that relationship might vary as well so I'm really behind actually I think I think a vague a vague definition or notion is is really what's needed and I think it's more about integrated neighborhood working but the um, problem with that the, static the, problem teams. With, the problem with that vague definition is what happens is then you get pressure at the top of NHS England saying where are we up to with with neighborhoods in our local area and so then people in ICBs are like tasked with well we need to be making progress with it and they're like you they, they don't know what it is either and then you find in a situation where you know, your PCM might be doing some you know some small projects you know on, on like frailty or diabetes or something before you know it you're being held up as your you know, your local example of integrated neighbourhood working because people are going, well, we need to say something, so we're just going to use our local project for it. And that's happening all over the country. Mm -hmm. Gandhi? Uh, well, I'm going to bring on some of the comments, if that's all right, because I think we've got some awesome ones here. INTs mean something different across the system from Cheryl. Definitely agree with that and, and things. Um, uh, whereas we have... Can I just say, even P but can I also say that even PCNs, there is a definition, but... There, there are there's a real variety in what they do, how they think yep. that they spend the money, and how they operate. Definitely agree with that. Um, Monsieur Ahmed, neighbourhood teams is a great concept as a strategic lead for access in, in my ICB. It's hard to get enough practices, PCNs working together, let alone hospitals, urgent treatment centres, one one providers, other providers. Sarah's random stuff says we're an INT pilot site. I'm not sure what it is yet, so they're still working across it and things. Um, and who else have we got? Uh, Cheryl back again. INTs don't need utopian models of a single hub offering all services one place. It can be something small that has a big impact on the communities. I guess my experience of INT, so my network's been an INT kind of pilot site for Nottingham with a second in, in tranche. Actually, Andy's, you know, PCN was the original one. And I remember about a year or so ago, Andy actually led on doing some of the kind of stuff that is now basically what we call INT working. 
Um, and I guess the interesting part is I think there's real potential benefit for communication. And Ben's comments were landing with me as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very much so. I remember, you know, some of the stuff Andy's network was doing was was kind of shown up to the rest of us saying, look at what they're doing. This is integrated neighborhood working. And then the side comment of, what are you doing? You know, um, whereas actually everybody does their own thing focused on their local population, which is the key part. Um, but I think... I'm seeing real benefits from being able to work with others, but it's that initial getting together. And unfortunately, now in a place where we're coming towards April, and I mentioned this earlier, because of the uncertainty of what is happening with funding, actually a lot of the INT working that we were committing to, we're now turning around saying, actually, we don't know if we can keep doing this because there's just so much uncertainty about how much we can con continue to contribute to some of this. Um, and, and that's really frustrating because we've done some really cool stuff that we want to keep doing. But I just don't know if we can. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm slightly frustrated with that one. But yeah. That little noise at the end just distracted me. <laughs> <laughs> I, think it's funny, I think it's funny that Andy it was the lead for Integrate Naval Teams. And he doesn't know what, he doesn't know what <laughs> I'm, I'm probably not representing the work that's been undertaken very well tonight. Um, there's a lot of hard work that's been done, but it's quite nebulous. Different things for, for different conditions, different people. It's really hard to pin down. I think my, my last two cents on integrated neighbourhood teams is I think some, I think it's good to be think big and think ambitious, be ambitious, but it's like too big. It's like, can we just work with our pharmacists, our pharmacies? You know, like, can we start there versus trying to get everybody singing on the same hymn sheet? Tara, I'm telling you, some of our viewers are almost, you know, telepathic. So Emma Ray already posted this comment before you even said it. But absolutely, Tara, adult to adult relationship with NHS England, not parent to child, although they're deciding the pocket money. Appreciate that's with NHS England. Uh, I would have read that as INT if you just substitute NHSE for INTs and stuff in that particular one and things. Um, Victoria, men oh, sorry, it's jumping around. Victoria mentioning interoperability of systems is a real issue for integration. I think we could all agree with that in terms of how it works and stuff um and janina comment after my own heart um int no funding and spot on gandhi good services set up but can't continue due to no funding i would love to make that noise again but i think it's a bit too embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> okay i feel like we've covered a lot that was good that was fun um so we are going to be together on the 17th of april in nottingham for pcm plus and it's just gonna it's just like this in person it's a hybrid hybrid conference so for those of mm -hmm. you that can't make it you can view online and we also have yeah in person and it's yeah we've done it this be the second time it's a great opportunity to come together to hear what can be done i don't it's not going to be a day of moaning so there are despite the challenges despite the constraints there are people across the country doing some amazing stuff so if you've got some amazing stuff to share i would definitely definitely come absolutely and and just to mention to people i've even increased the number of people that can attend so we, we, we were already full um but we have got space to add some more people in so if you did try before and couldn't get in please do log on you will be able to still attend there's a little more space still there so unfortunately we realized we capped it a little bit too early so i've just made that to the correct number of people that we can take in the in the, the center and stuff tara i say if you can't come so if you sign up and then you can't come please let us know this is a free conference yes that we are funding venue food so if you can't come please do let us know so somebody else can take your place. Okay? Absolutely. Because we are unfortunately limited by ca the capacity of the venue. So we are having to cap it. And as I said, you know, we, we're already onto the reserve list as it is and stuff. So please, please, please let us know if uh, things change and you can't come, you can still engage because it's going to be hybrid. So you can still join us on the remote section and stuff from there. But as Tara mentioned, please let us know from that point of view. If you want to join in, it's bit.ly slash PCN plus 24L, all in capitals. And that'll take you straight to the web link. I'll put that in the chat as well and you get to join us live in addition we're also going to have some fun things after the conference and if any of you who are watching us live on this decide to come 
when you arrive, show us your comment on your phone or device or whatever, and you'll get a photo with all four of us at the end at the session and stuff and things. So I said there'd be something fun if you do join us and things. Um, alternately, if you do want to check out some other stuff, that... people are wanting to come. It's <laughs> not really a benefit. <laughs> How is that not a benefit? Trust me, getting all four of us in the okay. room, it happens once a year. Once a year it happens that you get all four of us in the same room. So definitely join us from there. Um, uh, however, if you do want to find out more information about what's going on in general practice and stuff, definitely listen to Ben every Monday on the General Practice Podcast. Tara every Tuesday, is it? I think. I, I'd say read the blog, which comes out on a Tuesday. Read the blog on the Tuesday. Alternately, you can absolutely join me and Andy back here on EGP Learning. You can definitely check out this episode, which is us celebrating our 15,000 viewers and st subscribers and stuff. Alternately, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm sure we're going to be going live, which will be this episode here. And as we continue to tech enhance your primary care and learning. so much for joining us if you like what you hear i would absolutely love it if you left us an itunes rating and five star review i know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on twitter at thc primary care on instagram and on linkedin just look for tara humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter in the show notes and i will see you in the next episode.